Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends, and welcome to You Are the Current Resident Podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan. We're back together again in the same room. Sitting next to me is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, Eddie, I'm doing good. I like this better than Zoom. Yes. <laughs> Get to actually see and talk to you. Yeah. Yep. So this is our Veterans Day episode. We just want to say thank you to all the veterans out there that have uh, sacrificed and served for our country. Do you have anything to say about that, Brian? Yeah, it's a, one of the really special holidays that we get to celebrate every year. You know, they're all special for various reasons. But this one in particular, Veterans Day, you know, we have such a large percentage. The number varies a little bit, but typically roughly between a quarter and a third of NALC members are veterans. So we've got a sizable, you know, tens of thousands of, of our own members of our own union that are veterans. And it's just fantastic for us to have the opportunity on this day to, you know, honor them and appreciate their service. And so often we talk about how so many of our letter carriers are people that, that served their country and turned in their military uniform for a letter carrier uniform and continue to serve. So really excited about the opportunity this weekend to honor and appreciate all of our veterans and specifically the members of our union that have also served our country. Couldn't say it better myself. So last week, we had a few more of those Enough is Enough rallies. You want to talk about where you've been? Yeah, we uh, have done a couple, I guess, since the last podcast. We had one on Friday, November the 3rd in San Francisco with Branch 214, and they did a fantastic job there. President Karen Eshabar worked hard to put together a a great event and and got some nice coverage there locally. The Bay Area, we've also done a rally in Oakland over in Branch 1111 just across the Bay a few weeks ago. It's a location where we've we've seen from the U.S. Attorney's Office there a pretty obvious increase. And, and focus, and they've started to prioritize these cases. And you know, I've said kind of half joking that you can tell they prioritize something when they have a press conference about it. So they uh, have announced a number of arrests and convictions and things like that. So um, that was an excellent event. And then on Monday, November the sixth, we had a fantastic rally in Detroit. They're right downtown Detroit. Branch One, obviously, and Sandy LaMail, who's the president there, and also national trustee. It was right there near Branch One, and I had a lot of Branch One members there, but we also, we had branches from all over the state of Michigan, really. not I started to say Southeast Michigan, but not only Southeast. I mean, from, I don't want to name them all, I'll miss some, but out west of Detroit, all the way up to Lansing and Saginaw. So I had a lot of folks out there, a lot of really, really positive media coverage in that Detroit market from print to the the news stations to radio, which is the reason we do these, is to continue to raise the public awareness of this issue. And uh, I think we had a very, very successful effort there. So, you know, as we do these around the country, I want to really appreciate the people that have been involved both here at headquarters, you know, our staff, as well as the branches that have expressed an interest in doing these and in particular, I, I don't know if we've mentioned this on the podcast. I really want to thank, at almost all of these rallies, we've had members from wherever that location was yesterday. In Detroit, we had a couple of members that unfortunately had been victims of robberies at gunpoint. And hearing the bravery that they show to come to an event like that to 
um, talk to the media to, you know, talk to the folks there about their experience and what happened to them. And as you might imagine, it deeply affects them in a number of ways and causes, you know, all sorts of mental, emotional stress. But I really want to appreciate them because the bravery that it takes to come out and, you know, really almost relive something that is a very traumatic thing that's happened to them really tends to bring home that message that we're trying to convey. And I think they they do it because they know that by sharing their story, it could maybe help someone understand the seriousness of this. And if that helps prevent these in the future, then uh, they're more than willing to do that. We're making progress, as we've said many times. There's no quick fix to this, and uh, we're starting to see some progress made. And hopefully, as we continue to get the word out and work on the legislative front, as well as continuing to engage the Postal Service and the Inspection Service, that we will see a, a further reduction in the number of these crimes that take place. And hopefully, down the road, we'll be in a place where letter cares out there on the street are safer. That's ultimately what our goal is. And at the end of next week, we'll be having our wrap session in New Orleans. I almost said New Orleans, but I like to get home safely. So it's yeah, New Orleans. You got it right. Can you walk us through what's going to happen at the wrap session? I'll kind of generally run through it. It's Friday, November 17th through Sunday the 19th in New Orleans, as you said, which is almost home for me. So that's exciting. And I'm sure the folks that are attending our branch president, state presidents will really enjoy being in New Orleans. It's a a very unique place. But on Friday, we will have registration. And then on Friday evening, there will be a kind of a welcome reception. Um, Look forward to seeing everybody there. Saturday, the entire day, will be dedicated to a number of different workshops. And just to roughly tell you what the the schedule is, um, we'll have four different workshops. We will do each of them twice. So everyone that attends, when you register, you'll be given a schedule. Everyone will get to go to all four. They are a little less than two hours each, I think like an hour and 45 minutes or something. Each of the other nine resident officers will be in three of the classes, and then we'll have a fourth class that I'll probably start, and we'll have a lot of our different staffers from headquarters on a variety of topics. It'll be very fast-paced, things that you'll hear from all the resident officers. You'll hear from a lot of our staff here at headquarters on a wide, wide variety of topics. So time will move very quickly as we go from one to the other. So we anticipate sharing a lot of uh, information and kind of the latest and greatest, the current things that are happening. And pretty much, you know, by having all of our resident officers do pieces on their different responsibilities and then, you know, a lot of our headquarters staff also talking about a number of different things. We will really cover almost everything that's happening, you know, within our union throughout the course of Saturday. So that should be a fun day. And then on Sunday morning, we will have the actual wrap session itself. That'll be, for the most part, me sharing updates and talking about where we are on important issues such as collective bargaining and crime issue that we've talked about. And of course, we'll get into updates on things like legislative priorities and that type stuff. And then we have a handful of new things that we're working on that are mostly in the early stages of development that we're really looking forward to sharing with our leadership out there. And then, of course, have the opportunity to hear from uh, all those that are in attendance that want to come up to the mic 
Mike, you know, whatever is on their mind. It's always a very productive discussion where we're able to talk about in between conventions just what's going on around the country. For those that will be attending, I think I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. Since we're in New Orleans, we'll definitely have some local flavor for you there, both on Friday and then we've got something that should be, I think, really positive and entertaining on Sunday morning when we start the rap session. So really excited to be there and I'm sure it'll be a productive few days. Sounds great. So this is our Veterans Day episode, Veterans Weekend episode, and we have a special guest, Executive Vice President Paul Barner will be here. Brian, do you want to talk about Paul for a minute? So uh, I think most of our listeners know Paul's the Executive Vice President, but Paul's also a veteran himself. He served in the Army, which I'm sure he'll talk about. He has, even prior to being Executive Vice President for a number of years, while he was both Assistant Secretary Treasurer, and then before that he was a staffer here at headquarters, has worked on these issues related to veterans, including the creation of the Veterans Group, which we'll talk about. It really remains the officer that oversees the vast majority of that type of stuff. So being a Veterans Day special, it's a perfect opportunity for us to have Paul on and certainly appreciate his service. You know, we'll wish him a happy Veterans Day, but he'll get in depth on the things that are specific to our union members and some of the resources we've created, the Veterans Group itself. And I think we'll dig in to uh, a couple of issues that have kind of wide ranging impact on our members that are veterans. So excited to have Paul on and that should be a, a conversation that both our members that are veterans will enjoy listening to, but if you're out there and uh, you're not a veteran, you should enjoy it as well. But I do want to point out, you know, for our representatives that are out there, that be it shop stewards or branch officers or whatever role you play at whatever step in the process, OWCP even, there are a lot of things that are specific to veterans that even if you're not a veteran, they may not impact you individually, but they are very important to know in your role as a representative of letter carriers because both through the law as well as contractually, in some cases a combination of both, there's a lot of provisions that apply to our members that are veterans that we need to be very well versed on to ensure that that we provide that representation. So Paul's uh, kind of the perfect guest for this particular episode, and we're excited to uh, be able to talk to him about a lot of stuff related to veterans and on this episode that'll come out on Veterans Day weekend. You almost took the words out of my mouth with, you know, the stewards listening to this. But I'd ask you, uh, implore you to share this with any of the carriers you work with. If they're a veteran, share this episode with them. If you have a steward, make sure you share this episode with them so they know what the rights and benefits of their veterans are. For sure. Here's my special Veterans Day interview with NALC Executive Vice President Paul Barner. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. So before we get into uh, the topic, kind of all things veterans with this special uh, Veterans Day episode, why don't you give the listeners some of your background? I think a lot of people obviously know you're Executive Vice President now, but you know, you've done a lot of stuff both with the union and prior to that with the military. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background? All right. Thanks. Um, so when I graduated from high school, I joined the United States Army and served in the Army for six years. And then after I came out, shortly thereafter, I applied for the post service and became a letter carrier. 
So as this episode is a Veterans Day special, and I, I wanted before we get into, we've got a number of things to talk about. Just give you the opportunity to maybe share your thoughts on Veterans Day. You know, this is a special day for a lot of reasons, but particularly for us and NELC as a union, the fact that we have a pretty large number of our members that are veterans. So I just want to give you the chance to maybe share any thoughts you have beyond that on Veterans Day and how it relates to our union. Yeah, we are unique in that NLC does have a lot of veterans who are letter carriers. And, you know, Veterans Day was designed or created to honor veterans or those who served their country in the armed forces. It's a special day to veterans. We appreciate the recognition that we're given from the communities. And there's a lot of activities that are available to veterans during Veterans Day. And you can go out and get a get a meal if you want a meal, and there's a lot of different things you can do. So it is. It's a special day for us. It means a lot to us that, that the public sets aside that day to thank veterans and yeah. recognize us. Yeah, for sure. It's one of those really special holidays that we have in this country where we get the opportunity every single year to honor those that have served our country and, you know, with us having somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of our members being veterans, it's always special for letter carriers and, and for our union too. So over the last several years, NALC has tried to, you know, really increase and step up not just the representation that we've always provided, but the resources and, and activities that we make available to our members that are veterans. And I know back in 2015, we started a group specifically for veterans, and you were involved in that from the very beginning and, you know, remain heavily involved. So why don't you just tell us maybe a little bit about the history of the veterans group and in general, what the group was intended to do from the beginning and maybe a little bit of how it's progressed over the years. All right. So yeah, in 2015, I had the opportunity to um, start working on putting the group together. The initial intent of the group was to recognize our member veterans and thank them, but also to provide them resources that are beneficial to them, not only through their civilian lives now, but also through the post service. There's a lot of regulations with the post service that are specific to veterans. And, you know, the intent of the group was to make sure that our veterans understood their rights and benefits with the post service, as well as those things that affect them outside of the post service. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot, there's an educational element to it. We'll talk in a few minutes about some of the resources, but there's also a camaraderie and connection, I think, that's happened among our veterans as a result of that group within our union. So let's start here. As far as the group, it's grown to be, I think we have about 19,000 or so members now. So if somebody's listening out there and they're an NELC member and they're a veteran, they're not a part of the veterans group. Let's start there. How do they sign up? Well, there's a couple of ways they can do that. The easiest way is to go online to the community service tab, and there's a drop down. You'll find the veterans group, and it lists several ways to join the group. One way is as easy as just sending an email. There's an email link there that you can put the information in and send that to us, and we will enroll you in the group. There's also a form that you can print out with the same information and then mail that in. We can uh, enroll you that way, as well as every month in the postal record, there's a postcard that you can use, the same postcard that you would download from the website, but you can fill out that postcard, mail it in, and, and we'll enroll you. Yeah, it's real easy, and if you, for whatever reason, you know, you still have a question about it, you can always 
call your national business agent's office really about anything, but, you know, just open your postal record and there inside in the inside cover on the left side, you'll see information. So Paul, one of the things that we have produced, we talked about, you know, resources and education is a guide for veterans. It's literally a book that has a lot of stuff that's specific only to veterans. So why don't you maybe talk a little bit about that, the type of information that's in there that could be useful to our veterans. I know we'll probably get into detail on a couple of issues here in a few minutes, but you know, what's in that book? And, and then I think maybe most importantly, if people don't have one, how can they get one? All right. Yeah. So it's a pretty comprehensive guide. So it talks a little bit about legislation, how legislation impacts veterans. And then it gets straight right into the Veterans Preference Act of 1944, which has a lot of um, information about the rights of veterans and specific to their employment rights with other federal agencies. It talks about retirement credit for military service, which is known by veterans as the military buyback. It talks about Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act of 1994, which is known as USERA. There's information about annual leave accrual. Veterans have a different accrual process than non-veterans do when they come into the post service. Talks about military leave. If you're still serving in a reserve or, or guard component, um, you'll and, and have to take leave for military service. There's information about that. Talks about wounded warriors leave, which provides additional leave benefits for veterans who have service-connected disabilities. Again, I think we're going to talk a little bit further about that in a minute. It talks about medical appointments for disabled veterans, on-the-job injuries. So there's this dual coverage that comes into play between OWCP through your federal employment with the Post Service, and then if you have a disabled veteran rating, talks about veterans and mental health access, veterans' preference as far as disciplinary process and being able to refer a case to the Merit System Protection Board if you so desire. It talks about your layoffs and reductions in force protections, which are a little bit different from those of a non-veteran letter carrier. It discusses reinstatement if you were to leave the post service and then come back. So it's the guide is, is full of a lot of information. Most of it is geared towards contractual provisions and your rights with the Post Service as being a veteran. And I think an important point to make here, you just heard Paul go through a lot of different topics. And when we created this thing, we put everything we could think of <laughs> that would affect a veteran. But I think an important point to make right here is the vast majority of the topics that are covered in some form or fashion, if the Postal Service fails to comply, they're probably going to end up in the grievance procedure. So if you're listening out there and you're a, a shop steward or a branch officer or you know involved in representation in any way, even OWCP representatives, if you have not read this guide, even if you're not a veteran, I strongly encourage you to, um, because there's a lot of stuff in there that, um, as far as contract enforcement, that you would really need to know in order to be able to represent your members that are veterans. So maybe the most important question is, how did somebody get one of these things? All right. Well, you know, we talked about the veterans group. And so when you join the veterans group, there's a couple of things you receive just 
by merely joining the group. And, and one of them is the Veterans Guide. So we will send you a copy of the Veterans Guide as soon as you join. You also will receive a lapel pin as well as a thank you message from you, Brian, honoring the member for their military service. But to get the guide, um, if you haven't joined the group or join the group prior to the guide being produced, you can simply go on the website under the Community Service tab. And again, that drop-down box I discussed earlier, the NLC Veterans Group, and you can scroll down through that information and you will find the Veterans Guide. You can click on it and there's an online version right there for you. As we mentioned, beyond the, the educational and the informational part of this, we also try to you know, there's a camaraderie element and, and do things that can serve the, the veterans community. And a few years ago at one of our national conventions, we started what's become a project that we do to benefit veterans in some way each convention. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, what we started in 2018 and what we've done since then? Yeah, so like you said, you know, veterans are a close-knit group. And um, we're fortunate as Lair Cares to have good jobs decent pay, but there's a lot of veterans out there that don't have that opportunity. And for whatever reason, we have a lot of veterans that are that are homeless. And so in Detroit, we started this at the Detroit Convention in 2018. And what we did there is we stuffed bags with all types of different care items, personal hygiene items, that sort of stuff, and gave them to the homeless veteran shelters in the Detroit area. There were thousands of bags that were donated to benefit those veterans. In Hawaii, well, what was supposed to be in Hawaii at the 2020 convention, naturally, you know, we were unable to do that convention. But in Hawaii, we had planned to restore a monument that had been on the island since shortly after World War II. And the monument was in a tribute to the soldiers and sailors Marines and airmen who were killed during World War II that that lived on the islands of Hawaii. Even though the convention was canceled, we were still able to coordinate the restoration of that monument and, you know, again, to recognize those veterans who had uh, died in service of the country. In Chicago, we did a ruck march, and again, the donations from the ruck march, the entrance fees, that sort of thing, were all contributed to the homeless veteran shelters in the Chicago area. Yeah, and I suspect that we will have something at the convention next August in Boston, and those of you that are going to be delegates to that convention, you can definitely look out for what we'll be doing there. One thing I just want to mention briefly, in 2020, as you mentioned, we because of the pandemic at the time, we're unable to have the convention in Hawaii. But the monument that we played a, a big part, really, in, in having it restored, it was really run down. I mean, it, it was in very bad condition. I mean, almost, frankly, shameful it was. condition. And it looks, um, the kind of before and after is amazing there. So if you're ever down in Hawaii, which uh, we probably will be back there <laughs> before too awful long for a convention, but I'm sure it'll still be looking good. But it's something that we can, uh, all of our veterans, particularly those, you know, that are from the state of Hawaii can be very proud of. All right. So you talked about what was in the guide and there's a lot of different stuff in there. Um, but there's a couple of things in particular I, I thought we should dig into in a little more detail uh, on the podcast because th- there are certain provisions such as USERA where most letter carriers more than likely will go their entire career and that'll never really affect them. But there's a couple of provisions that affect 
nearly all veterans that, that I'd like us to dig into a little bit. And the first you mentioned earlier, the opportunity that veterans have once they finish their military service and they become postal employees, in our case, letter carriers, they have an opportunity to make deposit or buy back the time they served in the military and have it credited towards their retirement. So why don't you kind of explain what that process is? I suspect a lot of our listeners that are eligible for that have already done that, but there may be some out there that haven't done it. And it's one of those things that the vast, vast majority of people that have the opportunity to do it, they do it. So, you know, if you're listening and you are a veteran and you have not done that, this will be really, really important information. So why don't you kind of walk us through what that process is like? Yeah, absolutely. So eligible veterans have the opportunity to buy back their military time. And again, it counts towards credible service towards their retirement credit. So it really depends on whether you're a FERS employee under the Federal Employees Retirement System or a CSR employee under the Civil Service Retirement System. If you're a FERS employee, your deposit is 3% of your military base pay for military service up to 1999. Now, if any military service during 1999, the rate is 3.25%, and then any military service performed in 2000, the rate is 3.4%. After that, the rate returns to 3.0%. For SERS employees, CSRS employees, it's the same type situation, except the percentage is 7% on the military base pay prior to 1999. It increases to 7.25% for service performed in 1999 and 7.4% for service performed in 2000. And then the rate returns to 7.0 for service performed after 2000. When you join the postal service or are hired at the post service. One of the things you want to keep in mind is that for the military buyback, you get a two-year grace period. After that two-year grace period, in addition to the percentage that I just went went over, you'll be required to pay a interest rate on top of that. So, you know, so again, you get the two-year grace period before the interest rate kicks in. So it's really a decision if you want to save money in the long run, it's a decision you need to, to probably make in those first two years. However, that interest rate isn't prohibitive. So if you don't make that decision in the first two years, then um, it's still something that's a very viable option and the benefit will likely far outweigh the cost in the long run. One thing you have to remember, though, is that all the deposits, the full buyback has to be made prior to separating from the post service. So again, it's something that you need to plan for. You can make deposits you know, on a by pay period basis or as you want, but you need to plan it out to make sure that all those deposits are finalized prior to separating. Yeah, and just a, a couple things, I think, natural questions that people may have. They may say, why is the percentage higher for CSR as for civil service and FERS. That's simply a product of when it comes to FERS, roughly a third of the FERS retirement is an annuity, which the years of your years of service, you know, directly determine the amount of that annuity. So it would stand to reason that's a lower percentage than CSRS or civil service where the entire nut is an annuity. And then for those, if you're listening, if you're a CCA or you're a former CCA, that two-year 
grace period, that begins when you are converted to career status. It doesn't start when you're hired as a CCA. So if you were a CCA for a year and you've been career now for a year and a half, um, you're still within that two-year grace period window. So it's it's when you become career employee is when that starts. So uh, there's a lot of just refer everybody back once again to the Veterans Guide. There's a lot of detailed information in that guide about this process, how it works. You know, it's pretty simple. You just really call shared services to start the process and all that's covered. So just to kind of wrap up the, the buyback, most people, the vast majority of people, because you have the ability, a lot of flexibility in terms of how you pay it off, even if you've got a significant number of years of military service, it's very affordable to pay it, you know, over the course of whatever period of time. And Paul, as you mentioned, even for people that get beyond that grace period into where they're having to pay interest, the cost of what they pay is far, far outweighed by the benefit. So if you're a veteran and you've not done that, regardless of how long you've been here, we really encourage you to look into it. And, you know, any questions that you have, you can always call in ALC headquarters here and ask for the retirement department. And those folks will be more than willing to, to help you out. All right. The other one is a more recent fairly recent over the last few years. The other topic that I thought we should dig into a little bit, and that is from some legislation that passed several years ago, and it's called the Wounded Warrior Act, and the Postal Service at that time implemented it and has since made some modifications that were actually beneficial to letter carriers. So, well, why don't you just tell our listeners about the Wounded Warrior Act and Wounded Warrior Leave and you know, who can use it, and just maybe a little bit about that benefit that's really exclusive to our veterans. Okay, so the Wounded Warrior Act applies to those veterans who have a 30% or higher service-connected disability rating through the Veterans Administration. Once they've established that they have a 30% or higher rating, then they qualify for Wounded Warrior leave. The amount of leave that you're eligible for is up to 104 hours per leave year. Now, in order to use that leave, you must, again, you must have established that you have the 30% or higher service-connected disability. But beyond that, you have to naturally complete a 3971 leave request, turn that into your supervisor, as well as a PS Form 5980. And the PS Form 5980 is the treatment verification for wounded warrior leave. And that basically establishes that the leave that you're taking is in connection to treatment for your disability. So again, that's a huge benefit now to veterans. So it's added leave for those who have that disability of 30% or higher. You definitely want to check into it and take advantage of it if it applies to you. Yeah, definitely. This is a relatively new benefit. It's been around for a few years, but if you're listening and you're a veteran and you've got a disability connected with your service, you're more than likely very familiar with what that is. So it's a benefit that you may be entitled to and you should take full advantage of it if you you have to seek treatment for that reason. Okay, uh, let's just uh, wrap up. Paul, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, for what we've talked about the guide and uh, we've talked about a number of different things, but just in general of news and, and things of interest to our members that are related to, I guess, Veterans Affairs would be a good way to describe it. Where can folks kind of stay updated and where do we distribute information to them? 
Well, you know, two very good resources is one, the postal record. We have articles dealing with things that affect veterans. Anytime there's legislation affecting veterans, we put that in the postal record. We put other information. Naturally, if there's any type of a contractual change, we would put that in the postal record as well as on the website. So again, on the NALC website under that community service tab, there's a NALC veterans group drop down and there's tons of information from the guide that we spoke about to how to join to legislative initiatives to just general information of things that affect veterans, our members. So again, those are the best resources to find that type of information. Yeah, and, and we utilize the resources that we have here at, at headquarters to track things like legislation that's veterans-related. So Paul said you'll see that, and you know, the website's a great place, but also in the poster record. Every month, we've got something to do with veterans, and we also kind of vary the topics. It might be a legislative update that's veterans-related, and then it may be a community service-type update. Um, last thing is that I just want to mention to our, our listeners out there, if you're uh, listening to this in the month of November, when this comes out on Veterans Day weekend, you likely just got your November postal record. And that magazine is a special issue that we do every year in November where we recognize all the members of our veterans group. So I um, encourage you to uh, definitely check that out. Well, Paul, I really appreciate you taking some time to join us and let me maybe be the first one in 2023 to tell you we appreciate your service and be the first one to wish you a happy Veterans Day. Well, thank you, Brian. It's an honor to serve. Okay, this is our Ask the Mailbag segment. Our first question comes from Jacob Tanner, Branch 638, which is in Spartansburg, South Carolina. His question is that he wants to get an understanding of what the arbitration process looks like in the grievance procedure. He's going to go in front of an arbitrator at the end of the month, and it's his first time. What should he expect? Yeah, good question. Um, So in our grievance arbitration procedure, uh, regional arbitration is the final step. So just to kind of briefly lead up to just for context purposes, we uh, when a grievance is filed locally by a shop steward, they discuss a grievance with the immediate supervisor, and that's what we call informal step A. If unresolved, it moves to formal step A, which is where the branch president and the postmaster or their designees will discuss the grievance, put the file together, develop their own facts and contentions. If they are unable to resolve it, it goes to the next step, which is step B, where we have a dispute resolution team. That dispute resolution team is made up of one NELC and one Postal Service member, and they are charged with issuing a written decision on the grievance. In the event they are unable to resolve it, it is then impassed, and that grievance is then sent to our National Business Agent's office, who within 14 days can appeal that grievance to arbitration. So once the grievance is appealed to arbitration, there's a process for scheduling it for a hearing. And in arbitration, we each of our 15 regions has a, an arbitration panel. So they have a group of arbitrators that at the beginning of every collective borrowing agreement are jointly selected by Postal Service and the NALC. 
The arbitrator that gets assigned each case is completely random. That's part of our scheduling procedure. So once a case is scheduled, a grievance is scheduled for arbitration, you've got a neutral arbitrator who essentially runs the hearing and is the the individual that has got the responsibility for issuing a decision. But both the union and the Postal Service will have what we call an advocate, an arbitration advocate. That will be for the union, people that are very experienced in handling grievances, people that are very familiar with the arbitration process, obviously, and they are the folks that will take that that case file and um, present the facts and, and make the arguments to the arbitrator to support the union's position. So if the grievance is a discipline grievance, so a letter carrier has been issued some form of discipline, and that grievance goes all the way to arbitration, there's something that... It, I'm not sure exactly what the grievance is that the question was about, but in a discipline case, we start with, in any case, something called the burden of proof. And in a discipline case, the burden of proof is on the Postal Service. So the Postal Service would sort of, you could say, go first in arbitration. They would present their case um, to support the discipline that they've issued to that letter carrier. There are, you know, opening statements typically made by the advocate. They could then call witnesses who would testify. Those witnesses, um, once they're questioned, they are subject to cross-examination. So if it's a discipline case, the Postal Service will, you know, often call a witness, maybe the person that issued the discipline. They'll ask them some questions so that the arbitrator can hear them, their testimony. Then the union would, the union's advocate would have the opportunity to cross-examine them. And similar to Maybe what you see on in court on TV, though usually not quite as dramatic, it's a pretty similar process. So, And then the same is true after that's concluded, then the union would have their chance to put on their case. We can call our witnesses, and then the Postal Service has a chance to cross-examine. Then each party can close in one of two ways. We often do and actually encourage our advocates most of the time to do what's called an oral closing. So after we've done an opening statement, we've put witnesses on, we've questioned them, we've had the chance to cross-examine the Postal Service's witnesses. It's usually most effective for us to sit there and, and just make final arguments to the arbitrator and, you know, why the union's position in the grievance should be sustained. Sometimes there will be an agreement, or sometimes not an agreement, but typically these things are agreed upon, where rather than doing an oral closing, the parties will write what's called a brief. So instead of you know making final arguments to the arbitrator while we're there in the hearing, we'll go back and within a certain period of time, the Postal Service advocate and the union advocate will each write a written brief or closing making their final arguments to the arbitrator. The same is true in a contract case. So if it, a case where the union has you know, alleged that the Postal Service violated the agreement, then the union would have the burden of proof, so we would go first. But that's essentially what the process is. And then that arbitrator, after hearing the testimony, if briefs are written once they receive the briefs, then that arbitrator will write a decision. Occasionally, an arbitrator will issue what we call a bench decision. So At the end of the hearing on that particular day, they will say, you know, hey, here's my decision. But the vast majority of the time, the outcome is that the hearing takes place. If you are involved in the hearing, as the listener asked the question, chances are you are more than likely going to be a witness. So, you know, the union's advocate will sometimes the day before the hearing, sometimes further in advance of that, they will prepare you for 
for your testimony. So you're not going to be caught off guard. We are very blessed to have around the country a number of our members that are really, really, really good at presenting arbitration cases. So ultimately what happens is all that takes place, and then the arbitrator writes a decision, and that arbitrator's decision is final and binding. Whatever that arbitrator says goes. So uh, in a nutshell, that's the process. And while I don't know exactly what your case is about, I feel sure that you will get absolutely the best quality representation from the folks that we have there in Region 9 that, that present cases for us in arbitration. Our next question comes from John Weber. He's a member from Mesa, Arizona. He saw our Facebook post on the San Francisco demonstrations of Enough is Enough. His question was, as an NALC member, what do we expect to have happen to improve our safety? What are we proposing? Yeah, so a number of different things. As I said, I think earlier in the episode, um, we were talking about the rallies. Unfortunately, there's not one thing that fixes this. There's a number of different things, so I'll run through them real quickly. Number one is we have to devalue the way that we access the mail as carriers. The vast majority of our robberies that, that we see around the country are to try to gain access to the mail, either by stealing the mail directly, but frankly, more often, stealing our keys. We have tested, the Postal Service has tested a couple of different technology solutions. They have publicly announced a pretty large investment in replacing the airlock keys. I can tell you that they are going to all be replaced at some point. So, When you devalue it, and the technology is such that it allows you to program it to a specific route, you can put an expiration time frame on it. So, you know, if if that key was lost or someone stole that key, as opposed to the way it is now where they can take that key and go open a bunch of different mailboxes, with the technology, we'd have the opportunity to cut it off or it would at least be very limited. So we devalue that key. That in and of itself will not fix this problem, but that's a piece of the solution. Maybe the most important part of the solution is we have to increase the number of these crimes that are prosecuted federally. They are federal crimes, so they go to the United States Attorney's Office. Frankly, the United States Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice as a whole is not doing a very good job of prosecuting these crimes. There's a very low percentage, and while we have started to see some improvement around the country and an increased focus in some locations, you know, I think in large part due to our efforts, that's positive, but we still have a long way to go. If we all think back to the days of years past when nobody would mess with a letter carrier, that's because people had this idea in their mind that that's a federal employee. If I mess with them, you know, that's a serious deal and I'm going to jail. We have to make that a reality. There's a lot of different ways to do this. Uh, The Postal Service, I'll have to give them credit. They have invested in 12 prosecutors around the country in these U.S. attorney's offices that the Postal Service themselves are funding to focus on nothing but prosecuting these cases. And while that's a positive, we need more. And at the end of this, I'm going to talk just a little bit about legislation because that's an important piece here too. The third component that I think is also very important and the reason that we have been working on you know these rallies and, and that type of stuff around the country as well as a lot of other media work that we've done you know interviews and things like that is we've just got to simply bring awareness to this issue and that has an impact not just on the people that we serve and their ability to you know keep an eye out for us 
but it also results in folks like the people in the U.S. attorney's offices. <laughs> Public pressure is a very positive thing when it comes to increasing prosecution rates. Something else that's missing that we are working on with the Postal Service and, and we'll work on legislatively is that we need a larger presence from the Postal Inspection Service to not just investigate these crimes after they happen, but to get in front of them and help us prevent them and provide some level of protection for postal employees to keep them from happening. And that ranges from things like intelligent policing, um, which I admittedly don't know very much about, to just the sheer number. I mean, the fact is there's about 2,000 postal inspectors across the country this problem has almost outgrown the capacity that they have to provide protection and prevention up front. So a number of these things we're already working on, but we also are working with several members of Congress, um, one in particular that uh, is a great friend of letter carriers on drafting a bipartisan piece of legislation that would do a number of things. It would provide for replacing all those airlock keys with a technology solution It would increase the number of postal inspectors that are out there and direct what those postal inspectors are to be used for, and that is to prevent these crimes, protect letter carriers. It would place a prosecutor in each of the 53 U.S. attorney's offices around the country that would focus the vast majority of their time on prosecuting these crimes. It would more than likely, we've not settled on something definitive here yet as to what this would look like, but we feel like we're going to get to a place where we modify strengthen the sentencing guidelines for these crimes. Currently, if a postal employee is not pretty seriously injured, they carry fairly light sentencing guidelines, So, which, number one, is not much of a deterrent, but number two, probably also is at least partially responsible for the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office is not prioritizing them like they should in our view. That legislation, we expect to be bipartisan. We expect to gain really widespread support for it. And in the meantime, that will no question become our number one priority legislatively once that bill is dropped. We hope to get that done sometime this calendar year. But in the meantime, you know, we're going to continue to engage the Postal Service. We'll continue to engage the media. We'll continue to hold these events around the country to bring awareness and until we finally get to a place where hopefully... I don't know if realistically we can say we eliminate these and we never have one happen again, but there's certainly a lot of areas for improvement and, and we'll keep working there because the fact of the matter is collective bargaining will always be our number one priority. The safety of our members is right there with collective bargaining as our top priority and we will continue to focus on it until we're able to see a significant difference and really get us back to the place that letter carriers have been around for a while, remember, back in the time where nobody messed with us. Next question comes from Norm in Ohio. He's a retiree. His question is about the Board of Governors. He wants to know what they actually do and how they're selected. Yeah, good question. So the the Board of Governors, let's first talk about how they how they get there. So the board is 11 people. Nine of them are folks that are nominated by the White House and then confirmed by the United States Senate. They each have six-year terms. Those terms are staggered, so they don't all begin and expire at the same time. Whatever party is in the administration, so right now it's a Democrat, that party cannot have more than five of the nine. So the majority can only be one politically. 
so right now we've got four Democrats, four Republicans, and an independent that essentially caucuses with the Democrats kind of in the same fashion that Bernie Sanders or Senator Angus King in the Senate, they're independents, but for purposes of numbers, they caucus with the Democrats. The other two members are the Postmaster General and the Deputy Postmaster General. And this was created in the 2006 Postal Reform Law called the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. So we currently have a full board. We do have two of our governors, one Republican and one Democrat, that are in what they call a rollover year. So when their six-year term expires, as long as their replacement has not been nominated and confirmed by the Senate, they can continue to serve on the board for up to one year. So the Republican, his name is Bill Zollers, the Democrat's name is Lee Moak, and their rollover year expires December the 8th. So we are actively working with the White House you know, in the Senate to get folks uh, into those seats that, of course, would share our vision as far as the future of the Postal Service. So that's how the board is constructed. Now, what they actually do and they're responsible for, the easiest way to explain it is it's very similar to what you would have in the private sector where you've got maybe a large corporation and you've got a corporate board. That corporate board, in our case, this board of governors, they really oversee everything that the Postal Service does big picture. You know, in the private sector, typically the CEO or whoever's in charge of the company will have a seat on that board. That is the case with us. That's one of the reasons why the Postmaster General and the Deputy Postmaster General in the law are seated on the board. So it's really modeled after what we see in the private sector. They are responsible for all kinds of things from budgetary items to monitoring the Postal Service's almost day-to-day operations to looking at a more of a long-term view of what the Postal Service will turn into. And, And right now, we have a board that for the most part is fairly cohesive in terms of their long-time view of the Postal Service. We've gone through periods of time in years past where we had board members that were very gung-ho on things, horrible ideas like that the Postal Service needed to be privatized and essentially were there to destroy the agency that they had been appointed and nominated and confirmed to a board to oversee. And, And we don't really have that right now. We've got a board that Again, you know, not that they agree on everything, but in terms of the big picture, you know, longer term view. So the easiest way to explain it is they can impact anything the Postal Service does. They have a significant amount of influence. They meet uh, roughly monthly at minimum, officially anyway. And in between there's, you know, as you might imagine, a lot of conversation, you know, with one another. And and then certainly we maintain, you know, open lines of communication with all the folks that are on that board. So really good question. And that was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question to submit, you can email us at social at NALC.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. And please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. If you have any questions to submit or have feedback about the podcast, again, please email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side and may your union have your back. Thanks for listening. Thank a veteran. See you next week.